Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, everybody. It's great to have you with us for another episode of This Is Your Journey, brought to you by the team at Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. And as we count down to the Paris Olympics later this year, this week we're joined by an Olympic and two-time world champion rower. Katrina Wherry has been representing Australia on the water for a decade in the Coxless Pairs, the Fours and the Eights. And she cut her rowing teeth on the Yarra River, was a scholarship holder at the Victorian Institute of Sport. Katrina, great to have you on the show and thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. And where do we find you at the moment? I'm currently in Penrith in New South Wales. And from what I understand it, between sessions, what's the training phase look like at the moment? Well, I'm just about to head into Olympic trials. So it's very hectic at the moment. So um, a lot of nerves running around the boat shed at the moment and just really focused on trying to make the team. Wow. So as we sit here in, what are we, uh, February, late February, I was just going to ask you what your potential path to Paris looks like. I mean, every sport and every governing body is different. Where do you sit at the moment in terms of, I guess, the team and individually speaking, qualifying for Paris? I feel like I'm in a very good position to qualify myself for the team. So that starts in two days' time. And that's the first sort of requirement that we need to do is qualify ourselves so I feel very confident going into this week of trials and then from there we have to get officially selected by the AOC which is in June I believe so there still is a little bit of a wait until everything's official Um, but from now till then we'll just be training in our boats that we're selected in. And what are your priorities for Paris? So I mentioned there the pairs, the fours, have you got an order of what are you focusing on? Well, the pair will be our um, first selected boat, which the two girls, Jess and Annabelle, have been racing the pair for a few years now. So we just are going to assume that they'll take that spot, that boat. And then from there, we're not really sure what's going to be selected next, whether it's the four, then the eight, or the eight and the four. So it's really up to the coaches and the selection panel and the board of Rowing Australia deciding how fast we are and who's good enough to be in which boat. So we don't really know. It's um, anybody's guess, but I'm just hoping to be in the four or the eight. So, Katrina, this would sound like a silly question on the surface. I was going to ask you how competitive it is for a seat, but what I mean by that is do you always have the feeling there's someone else breathing down your neck selection-wise, and is there a real fight for seats? Absolutely, yes. It kind of feels like... It's trials every single day, leaving in Penrith and training at the National Training Centre because we have a group of about 25 girls 
and every day on the water we're trying to perform at our best um, and it does get very competitive because we're all trying to be the best ourselves but also be really great and supportive teammates so sometimes it can be really challenging mm. balancing that teamwork and also trying to get ahead yourself yeah they don't really align with each other at this stage of proceedings do they <laughs> No, no. And that's why things get a little bit tense um, around the sheds because on one hand, we all need to individually qualify, mm. but we also need to work really well in a team as well. So it's trying to find that balance. So can I ask, as a complete rowing novice here, how is it measured? And what I mean by that is so athletics or swimming or field events and such, you know, it's obvious. Team sports are via traditional selection means, I suppose. It's... Uh, a coach can watch and observe. What about rowing? Like, how are you measured? If you're always in with teammates, how are you assessed? So we are, we get seat raced. So what generally happens is we start off in pairs. So that's a two-person boat, which is what I race in. And then we all race and get a ranking. So first through to ninth. And then from there, we're put into fours. And then we're able to switch one seat each race. So we'll go down the ra- um, go down the course, and then you get out, and then two people will switch positions, and then you race again. So basically, you just get a ranking, um, and seeing how much you beat the other boat by. So it does actually work. This. It is a bit complicated, but <laughs> you've done a pre- <laughs> you've done a reasonable job. But I'm going cross-eyed. I'll be honest. But I, yeah. <laughs> but it sounds like high stress, obviously. And we've obviously got you in the middle of all of that. I, I, having experienced the Tokyo Games, which we'll we'll circle back on and discuss in a bit further detail later on. What do you walk into? I mean, the pressure, the size, the interest, the media attention, and the like. And having done it before, does that add to your level of anticipation at the moment when you're trying to get back there again? Um, right now, no, because I'm just really focused on qualifying myself. Mm. But I think that it is a really good test to see how I will perform under pressure overseas. Because at the end of the day, everybody at the Olympic Games is really fit, really strong. Everyone's the best in their field, in their country. It's what separates people, realistically, in my opinion, is their mental resilience and their ability to perform under pressure. So that is something that I'm really trying to work on this season is being able to be able to perform regardless of how nervous I'm feeling. Yeah, that's fascinating because there's a temptation when people like me are speaking to people like you to be preoccupied with the physical, but how much time are you putting into the mental and do you seek um, external guidance, advice, training in that regard? Is that something you've done of late? Absolutely. When I first entered the training centre, there probably wasn't enough emphasis on this, but as we have developed over the past seven years, our coach has really pushed for the mental side of performance. We work with um, a lot of past Olympic athletes who have won gold in different sports and they come and mentor us and we're a part of this program, the gold medal ready program that the AIS has created. So we have all these amazing mentors come and speak to us about 
mental resilience and preparation and how they felt on their journey. And then we also work with the Australian Army and the Australian Commandos. And they come and speak to us as well of how they prepare. Obviously, their arena is very different in life and death, but there are a lot of similarities of being able to perform with high stakes. So Mm. we do have a lot of resources available to us to help us in this area. And that has made such a huge difference to me personally. And I can see that with the other girls in the group as well. Yeah, because it, it, oh, it's a state of the obvious. It's such a big build-up, isn't it? And the four-year cycle is the inescapable reality of the Olympic Games. And I, th- in many ways, this is an unfair question to pose because you are just so bogged down in qualifying, which I appreciate. But you're at the age of 30 now. Um, you'll yeah. be nearly 31 when the Olympics roll around in Paris. What is the, you know, for lack of a better phrase, shelf life of, of a top-level rower like where are you at in terms of being in your prime, so to speak? Well, I think based on the medals at um, the last Olympic Games, the average age was around 29 for the, the women who medaled. So I think that I'm just coming down off the peak. I'm noticing with myself being 30 that I'm starting to get a lot more niggles and injuries are popping up and, you know, the body doesn't work as it used to, you Mm. know, I can't bounce back as well as I did. Um, So things do change and you have to be able to change with that and adapt a little bit um, with your training and your technique and everything. So, um, yeah. Great to have your company here on This Is Your Journey. It's all thanks to Tobin Brothers, of course, a family-owned business since 1934. Next, we're going to trace the early steps that have taken Katrina to rowing's elite level. Stay with us. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating Hello, lives. Company on This Is Your Journey. It's made possible by Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Olympic rower Katrina Wherry is today's guest. So, Katrina, where did, where did you grow up? Where was home for you as a, as a kid? I grew up in Ballarat in Victoria. Was it a sporty household? Yes, very much so. I... And the eldest and my two younger siblings were very much in sport. My sister was very, very good at basketball, played for country Victoria. And my brother got into rowing and footy as well. Right. So did a uh, mum and dad, lay, do they lay claim to any elite level sport? What's the genetical, genetic flow down here from this sort of stuff? Actually, no. My mum wasn't sporty at all. My dad did cricket. Love cricket um, and footy, but never progressed with it. I suppose. Yeah. So you mentioned your siblings and their sporting pursuits. I, I must say, I'm fascinated by the very first exposure to sports that make people's careers that we discuss on this program. Now, I'm assuming it wasn't always and only rowing for you, was it? No, definitely not. What What else were you into? I started off playing tennis. I did tennis and. Um, netball. I tried footy at school. Um, I actually did martial arts. So everything. 
Yeah, so I tried lots of different sports and just wasn't very good at any of them. <laughs> so, so with that in mind then, when and how did rowing enter your life? At school, when I was I think the back end of year eight and I just signed up and um, didn't really know much about it and just gave it a go and I was pretty handy. Did it, did it grab, just from an enjoy, because hey, we all start and persist with things because we enjoy them as kids. Did it grab you straight away? Yes, it did. And, and what was. I think because I was good at it. Yeah. So I was just going to say, what was part of that? What was at the heart of that original appeal? Um, I think because, yeah, I was very good at it. And that's something that I wasn't naturally sort of gifted at anything else. And when I first started trying rowing I was pretty decent and I had this mongrel about me that allowed me to be quite quite successful very early on so I think that was the natural appeal you know you enjoy doing things that you're good at so so I stuck with it yeah for for sure And, and how did that inner mongrel unveil itself and when um pretty much immediately I just think it's something that I've always had, um, probably because I've been told from the get-go that I wasn't good enough. I wasn't particularly tall or um, I was very stocky as a kid, you know, so I think that no one really took me seriously um, when I first started getting into team sports. So I think that's where that mongrel sort of came from, sort of being told you're not good enough. So you realise you're pretty good at it straight away. Transferring that to now and all the way through to get noticed, and that we'll we'll go through your evolution in a moment as a rower, but what are the non-negotiables of being a rower at your level, at the elite level, the attributes, the things that you have to have? Um, You have to be very resilient. Um, You have to be a good team player, really. You need to be able to work well with others. Um, you have to communicate really well, obviously being in that team environment, you have to be okay with early morning, (laughs) um, and also the willingness to really hurt yourself in training. Yeah. And I want to stop you right there. So the physical component, obviously you need elite powers of endurance. So that, that's something I would have thought you need to have naturally and you can train and you can harness and as you get fitter and stronger, those things evolve, but you need to have a natural base, don't you there? Yes. Yes. You do have to have something there, but it's also very trainable, very trainable as opposed to if you don't really have the heart for it, you can't really teach that. So I've seen many talented athletes not get selected for one or fall off because they just don't have the heart. So were you so always, I, yeah, were you always gifted endurance wise? Like, do, do you feel now looking back that that was something you were given and then obviously something you work on or what, what percentage would you break it down as a, you know, naturally gifted as opposed to the, the work that you've put in? Um, I don't think I'm gifted at all um, compared to it's – all, it's all relative, isn't it? I think that I was quite good at it at a young age because I was so determined and I just went after it. But the more that I have progressed in my career, I've kind of figured out, no, I'm not very talented because, I'm, because of my body shape. 
and my like my lung capacity isn't big at all so realistically I don't have a huge engine um so but that's something that I I had trained for years and years and years to get a really good aerobic base but it yeah it's not something that came naturally to me at all and that preparedness as you touched on that willingness almost the love of the pain fascinates me and I think Anyone listening who's into running, distance running, especially cycling, any endurance sport can relate to this. In the moment when things get really tough and the world starts closing in and you are the body is screaming, what do you feel gives you the advantage over the others? Um, I, I feel like I am quite tough and I can sit in pain for a very long time. I know that everyone that I'm competing against is just as nervous or anxious as me. Mm. So I really try and almost play a game of seeing like who will break before me, you know, because everybody feels the same pain and it's, you know, that fight flight response kicks in. It's like, stop back off. You know, that, that voice always comes in, but it's, it's almost like this weird game that I play that I'm like, no, I can sit in it longer than you. So it's like this willingness just to endure yeah. So Katrina, you're rowing obviously at school level up there in Ballarat. What comes next as you move through the ranks? Well, I had success at school winning to head of the lakes back to back. And I suppose that got me noticed by um, a club in Melbourne, Mercantile Rowing Club. And they invited me to come and just join in with some training and see if I liked the club and then potentially, you know, sign on. So that's exactly what happened. And I eventually moved to Melbourne um, and then got started in club rowing and started to then work myself up through the club. And did the, the VIS scholarship come after that? Yes, after I started to have success at uh, under-23 level. And that, that's when things start to get a bit serious, I'd imagine? Yes. All right. Hey, just educate me before we take a break here, Katrina. Look, with the co- whether it's you know the Coxless fours, the eight, or whatever discipline you're rowing in, in the race itself, what de- this might not be a short answer, but what determines the seating order? Oh, it is. It is so. Yeah, every seat has a different role, and some people are really, really good at certain seats. So it's it's not just yeah, it is a hard one to yeah. answer. But you're not you're not all so just much. plopping you're not all just plopping in the boat though, clearly. No, no, definitely not. No. <laughs> We're with Olympic rower Katrina Wary on This Is Your Journey. It's all thanks to Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. The cut and thrust of elite level competition is after this. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. Hello, we hope you're enjoying this week's edition of This Is Your Journey. Dual world champion, Aussie Olympic rower Katrina Wherry is today's guest. Uh, Katrina, tell me something. When, when it's so tight coming into the finish line and the your boat and your competitions boats, they're bobbing in front of each other on, on the oar stroke. It's gripping on TV. What's it like in the boat? Everyone's straining, everyone under pressure. I'm interested, do you dare look across? What's it like in the moment when 
you're pushing to the line over the course of the last, you know, 50 metres, for example? I wouldn't dare look out, <laughs> that's for sure. No, that's too much energy redirected elsewhere. But um, I think it's just you have to stay really present. You just need to do your job very well. It does become a blur and often you don't really remember what happened, but you're just moving and you're in so much pain that you want it to be over. But then also you have to stay really committed, stay in time with your crew members. Um, so it's, it's this very weird feeling where you're like just trying everything you can to get in front, but also just to stay in time, to stay really present. Yeah. So when everything comes under stress as it, as it does and the body's under significant duress and the heart rate is skyrocketing, it's about things like keeping the technique under control, keeping in timing with the rest of your, your crew. And I guess they're the things that go first when it really does unravel. Yes, definitely. It's when the fatigue sets in, it's like, how can you still row very well and in time, even with that fatigue? And that's why we do all this training day in, day out is when like, that's exactly what we train for when it's neck and neck going towards the finishing line. It's like, how do you get in front? And that's exactly why we train so hard. And we've touched on this a bit, but the teamwork element of it all, like how, how much do you need to understand the others in the boat? Like theoretically, can you put eight superstar strangers in the one boat and they clean up or is there a chemistry that needs to be built? Yeah, that's um, sometimes putting eight, impeccable specimens in a, in a boat won't necessarily make you successful. It's about, you also have to measure up the team dynamics. How well can people work together? It's, you don't all have to be best friends, but there has to be a level of respect and um, openness and vulnerability and for everyone to be on the same page. So when you have tension or you sweep things under the rug, that's often when things unravel. And in rowing, you're stuck in a boat with these people mm. for months training. <laughs> and in a race, you're stuck with them. You know, you get selected and that's your crew. So you have to make it work. And often just with any job or career, things start to, you know, there's tension and then there can be bickering. So, and that's just part of life, right? So it's how do you manage the conflict? or the downtimes, you know, which is what inevitably makes a really successful crew in the end. Yeah, that's so interesting. So your evolution, you love it in Ballarat, you show your talent in Melbourne, then you're at the Victorian Institute of Sport. What were those early years like in the under-23s, Katrina? I mean, you're in Italy, you're in Bulgaria, I think, where you won a bronze. Is it is it head spinning at this stage? Yeah, I just think how good is life, you know? Like <laughs> it's it's something that I never thought – would happen to me um, to be an elite athlete and represent my country. I didn't know how far I could go with it at this point. It's just, I loved being part of the team environment. I loved competing and seeing the world and, you know, going to Bosnia and Bulgaria, as you said, like it's just very unique parts of the world. And that was so special to me. So the fact that I've gotten to where I am now, I just can't believe you know, this journey, it's been wild. Yeah. So 2017, I think it was, you're elevated to the senior squad. I think that year's world championships were in Florida. How vivid are these yeah. memories when you, when you probably think, or if you've got time to think oh, I've, I've cracked the big time here. Yeah. I mean, I, 
was my second year of seniors and I was unsuccessful the year before but I made the 27 team and I was in a boat with two Olympians I was like oh my god how good is this this is awesome and even though we had a really small squad that year we had a lot of success and a lot of fun times and I was just the new kid on the block just happy to be there and I just remember being so bright-eyed and bushy-tailed being like just wanting to soak in everything it was just such an amazing time of my life. Yeah. I wanted to stop you here because I think you're in the I think you're in the Coxless Falls. You win the heat, you made the final where it was said that you started very slowly, something like, you know, six at the five hundred perhaps. What, what how how sharp are your memory over what happens next? Um we were yes, I do remember that we um we kind of got backdoored a little bit and it wasn't an ideal position, but we still won, so it's it's never over till it's over. And I remember just being really ruthless and we just kept clawing our way back and back throughout the whole 2K race. And we only started to get in front, I think, in the last 200 metres where we were just absolutely going for it. So that was a really good race. And it taught us that, you know, you just can't give up. Just because you have a really slow start doesn't mean it's over. The Australians won the heat, won in this... Uh... Lucy, Stefan, Katrina Wherry, Sarah Hoare, 24 year old Molly Goodman in the stroke seat. The front is going to lead us off the blocks, but it's the crew closest to us. Poland in lane six, who have this early lead by just half a canvas. I mean, if you're watching and wondering in Australia, we know you're watching in the pubs in Sydney and in Melbourne, Queensland, and all over. The Aussies do have a relatively slow first half of the race, but uh, in Lucerne and in the Heat here, which they won, they did really have a very, very quick second half. So the Aussies will come back into it. In this Australian crew, Molly Goodman in stroke six from South Australia, Sarah Hall behind her, Katrina Wherry, and Lucy Stephan from Melbourne University Boat Club up in the bow there. These are all young women. This is really their first, I think, you know, big chance here on the international stage. They've been unbeaten so far this year, currently sitting back in about fourth or fifth position. Here come the boats in the middle of the course though, Australia in lane three, the Russians in lane four, the Americans starting to find the pace a little bit hot to handle off to their left hand side and these crews in the middle and now starting to chip away at that lead by the Dutch. It looks to me like the Dutch are starting to tire and the poles are coming with them. Well here we go, 500 metres to go. I still think something's going to happen, I just can't quite say what it is yet. The Australians in the centre of the course here, we see them, it doesn't look too far but it is far enough I think for them to come back and take this half length lead. They're up on 41 strokes a minute. We saw Lucy Stephan, the bow woman, look across. She gave them a shout. She said, this is the time. You can see she's looking across at the poles to the left. She's got the Dutch on the right, and the Australians are moving up into the lead. They're drawing level with the Dutch. There are 20 strokes left in this final. 43 strokes a minute. Australia in the lead. Poland moving up. Russia moving up. The Dutch, they're out of it. That brave, brave race early on, but they are on the wrong side of this. The Americans in fourth. Poland went early and Poland now look like they're coming back to try and challenge to get the silver and maybe even take on the gold, but I think the course is going to run out. We're coming down towards the line. It's Australia who look like they're going to take the gold. Hanging on just ahead of Poland who had a great sprint finish for the silver and Russia take the bronze. So I was ready to ask you what the collective feeling was and whether that was part of the master plan, the strategy, but, but no, <laughs> clearly not. It was. No, definitely not. Ideally, you'd want to get out in front and stay in front for the whole race, but... Yeah. Often that doesn't happen. Yeah. So on that, obviously, if you're out in front, come back to this peripheral view of you guys. Like, 
well, imagine when you're out in front, it's easy to to know where you are in relation to everyone else. But here, when you've come from behind to to get ahead of Poland and Russia, as I think it was, so you've honestly got no idea until the end whether you've got them or not. Yes, we, yeah. I personally didn't know because I was in the two seat, and my role was just to row and. Um, I wasn't making the calls. The, the girl behind me, Lucy, was making the calls and she was looking out to see where we were. So um, I just had to do my role and just stay in time and put down as much power as I possibly could. And I didn't know who'd won until we crossed the line and eventually someone told us. Now, again, excuse the naivety in these questions, but when you say making the calls, what sort of calls are they? So the, basically the person in the boat who um, sort of realized the race plan. Yeah. I mean, we all know the race plan, but it's, a lot of it is, okay, we're going to, we're going to stride out a little bit more. We're going to set into our, like, our rhythm. Um, we're going to make a move. Uh, we're sitting here. Um, we need to, like, a technical focus. Um, so there's someone that just orchestrates our movements together. Um, which is really important in the boat. So in an A, you have the coxswain, which sits at the front mm. and has a microphone attached and tells the crew what to do. So it's basically that as well in a different smaller boat. Gee, so is that the short straw? Because not only are they, these um, is this person dying like the rest of the crew, but they've got to speak as right. well. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Is it disconcerting not knowing where you are in relation to others or is it something that you've gotten used to over the years? Um, I've been in races where I had no idea where I was, um, which is, you know, if I'm truly honest, like sets off a little panic as well, especially if it's not communicated by the person who is um, supposed to make the calls. So, you know, you don't want to be looking out because that is, um, you know, not the plan ever to do that. And it doesn't set a good tone for the people in your boat as well. So it's... um, yeah, it does make me feel a little bit anxious, but also I have to try and trust the process as well. I just stay really present in my role. 2018, you had to settle for silver. I think there'd been a bit of chopping and changing in the lead up, but I think when it got down to it, you were seated the same as you were 12 months earlier. I think the US got you that year. But then how much did that fuel 2019? Because you got the world title back, you won the heat, you won the semi, and then you dominated. You led the finish from led the, led the final from start to finish. Yeah, 2018 was a very challenging year for me. Personally, I got a rib injury and I was initially selected in the eight, which was the third ranked boat. So I was a bit upset by that. But then also I was trying to get myself, my body right to race. And then um, one of the girls in the four got injured and then I replaced her. So... Yeah, there was a lot of up and down with injuries that year. So we we didn't feel like we had our best race during the 2018 World Champs. So um, we were actually pretty happy with silver, considering all the all the challenges that happened that year. Mm. Um, but that really set a flame for me going into the next year that I was going to do everything possible to be in control of my destiny the following season. And it's really a credit to the girls in the boat and our coach at the time um, because that was, yeah, it was such a great season, that 2019 year. 
Yeah, that must have been so satisfying. So we were talking so, earlier about, you know, you're up at Penrith at the moment and you're going through, you know, uh, the trials and, and the testing and, it, and it's all very tense. When you have qualified and you're at an event like the World Championships or the Olympic Games, is it an intimidating world? Like, do crews attempt to psych out other crews or have I watched too many movies? Um, it can be really intimidating, but I think I try and remember that I've earned my spot to be there. I have every right to be there. And, you know, there are a lot of girls, um, you know, athletes who are much taller than me, much bigger than me, um, come from different countries, different cultures. So um, it is very intimidating initially, but at the same time, it's, I can only control my performance and, you know, I have to stay really focused in that. Otherwise it's, I've, already lost before I even gone to the start line, you know, yeah. you don't want to psych yourself out. Yeah, oh, for sure. And I just like, is each and every unit and country and the like, just they've got the blinkers on and they're focused on themselves or is, is there known to be the odd comment made, the odd sledge here and there? Um, well, the, oh, actually it was interesting. 2022 was the first time I experienced any sort of sledging because mm. that's something that I think is, you know, has never been a part of rowing until uh, we actually got booed. I was in the women's four in 2022 and we were rowing along at the course and we got booed by the Dutch team. (laughs) Booed? (laughs) Which was, yeah, we got booed. It was very odd. Um, I think because our women's four beat the Dutch four at the Tokyo Olympic Games and it was quite close. So I think there was a little bit of resentment from the Olympics, but you know, that's why. Just a just a random booing from the Dutch. Yeah, it was odd. Yeah, it's strange, isn't it? it? <laughs> that's, it's very unlike. Yeah, this, you would never ever see that or hear that normally in rowing. Um, so that was very odd. You're listening to This Is Your Journey. It's all thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals Celebrating Lives. There's more to come with rower Katrina Wary right after this. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. You're listening to This Is Your Journey with Sam Edmund for Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. Tobin Brothers Funerals, celebrating lives. It's been great to have your company here on This Is Your Journey. Thanks to Tobin Brothers Funerals, a family-owned business since 1934. We've had the company today of Olympic rower Katrina Wherry. So, Katrina, I acknowledge the fact that you're really focused at the moment. So I apologise for all the Olympics-related questions because I know there's a process to what you are seeking to do. But just rewinding to Tokyo, I mean, how does your first games experience live on with you? You featured in the eight. Was it everything that you expected it to be? Um, No. Definitely not because it was my first Olympic Games and it was the COVID Games and it was just a very different experience to what I've been told mm. in the past. We had a couple of girls who'd been to Rio and they were sharing their stories in the lead up to Tokyo and I was like, oh wow, this is so incredible. And then obviously with COVID delaying the Games for a year, it was very different to what I originally expected the Olympics to be. So it's, it was very abnormal, the, the testing every day, the COVID test, and, you know, there was no crowd at all. So Tokyo itself was very quiet. Um, so I imagine 
this next one in Paris will be very different. I imagine, so what, the Olympic Village, you know, for all its hype, uh, was more like a library, was it, over in Tokyo? I can't quite recall um, athletes' recollections of What was the village like? The village was awesome. It was huge. There was athletes everywhere wearing masks. Yeah. So, but there was always like a bit of anxiety as, you know, don't come too close to me <laughs> um, constantly. But rowing normally isn't in the village. We stay um, outside in, at a different location just uh, because the rowing course, of course is further away. Yeah. So in Paris, we won't be staying in the village with the rest of the athletes. Might not be a bad thing because, as you would be aware, the AOC have approved, well, it's fair to say a divisive new ruling that uh, guys and girls who are in the village uh, have to, well, they kicked out two days after their last event. That hasn't gone down overly well. No, that, that happens with us too at our accommodation as well. Right. Well, that doesn't, uh, you have to take the party elsewhere then, ideally. Um, <laughs> so Tokyo, third in your heat, fourth in the repercharge and, and fifth in the Olympic A final. Now, am I right in saying your repercharge time was so good that if you were able to repeat that in the final, you would have actually won gold? Um, yeah, it's really hard because with rowing, you're dealing with the elements as well. With of wind And, um, you know, there was, the course was, they had this like cross crosswind and um yeah bounce as well so the lanes there was some lane variability too so it is really hard to compare days because you don't really know what the wind is doing um but we did have a significantly better race in the rapid charge than we did from the heat so that was very positive for us Rowing, you know, is like a lot of sports in the Olympics. They probably don't have the funding or the the corporate or the, you know, commercial backing that they probably deserve, to be honest, given you are competing at the highest level you possibly can. How do you balance it all, Katrina, in terms of the day job and funding and financing what you do? So we actually get um, money from Mrs. Gina Reinhardt, Hancock Prospecting, so she's our patron and she actually sponsors Rowing Australia and a few other sports as well. So we are so grateful for her generosity of giving us money so that we're able to train full time because generally we don't work outside of rowing because our training is three times a day, six days a week. So it's really hard for us to find a job that will be really flexible with our training hours. Um, so we do have to rely on the funding from Mrs. Reinhardt and then also getting medals at world championships to then help, um, you know, our life really. Yeah. Day to day. That's amazing. I knew um, Gina Reinhardt was a big financial backer and I knew she was rowing Australia's patron and I knew she, yeah. she poured money and I didn't realise it was to the level that uh, ensures that you guys can solely devote your time and your energies to rowing. It's quite, uh, it's quite incredible. Yes. Yeah. She's very generous and um, such a wonderful person and has had a lot to do with us over the past eight years. So we're very grateful for her supporting our sport and she's so passionate and she's supporting the whole Olympic team this year. She's a, a official sponsor of the Australian Olympic team. So that's so amazing for Australian sport. Has she got any sort of rowing background at all or is just more she's supporting the cause? Has she got a, a history in rowing or anything? Do you know, Katrina? I don't know, but she's just very passionate um, in Australian sport, particularly women in sport. So, um, yeah, she supports swimming as well. 
and yeah, she's just, I think she's just very passionate um, and wants to give back to the community. And did I hear that right? Did you say training three times a day, six days a week? Yes. So what is that? What does a typical day for you involve? Maybe you know, outside of uh, trials and whatnot, selection process. What's a typical day involve? Um, well, generally, our first session of the day is like a two-hour row oh. on the river, and then we have a short break, and then we have gym, which usually goes for ninety minutes, and then we'll have an afternoon session, which will be either like an hour, an hour on the rowing machine, or We'll have a 90-minute bike or we'll have another row as well. So, yeah, it usually takes up a fair amount of the day. So what's your appetite like for training? Is that, well, it's something you'd have to enjoy, giving that, you're doing that much of it. Yeah, we probably have a bigger appetite than the general person, I would say. We do eat a lot, um, but we also burn a lot of calories too, so... Um, yeah, we're very lucky. We have a dietitian on staff and she will often make food for us and, and, um, yeah, organize our meals and everything. So we're just very lucky at the training center to get the support that we do. Before we wind up, I'm, I'm just on the diet. So if I was to be speaking to a Tour de France cyclist or a, or a marathon runner, you know, it's probably just as much around uh, quantity as it is quality. You guys are totally different beasts altogether. Are, are you given free reign, obviously, to eat healthy, but just can you hoover in as much as you want? Um, probably not to, like overindulge I suppose you know balance with anything but we do eat a lot of carbs we are encouraged to have a lot of protein particularly straight after training um it's it's a lot of like timing of when you eat and making sure you're fueling properly um and recovery as well so making sure you do have that protein and calcium straight after training as well so it's it's not just like the quality and quantity it's the timing of when you eat yeah Katrina, so good to catch up with you. I mean, your sport obviously requires enormous physical strength, but as we've touched on, mental strength as well, discipline, and the fact you get to do it in the green and gold is just such a fantastic thing to lay claim to. So congrats on the resume that you're building. All the very best for hopefully what will, for you this year, involve the Olympic Games in Paris, and thanks for taking time out of a a busy day for you at the moment and sharing a story with us. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy. You've been listening to This Is Your Journey for Tobin Brothers Funeral Celebrating Lives. You can jump online to find them at tobinbrothers.com.au and we'll catch you the next time we celebrate another great sporting journey.